Good evening. My name is Mark. I'm one of the college interns here at Grace. And I am so excited to get to be up here this evening, get to talk with you. A few weeks ago, Matt Morton asked me to, to preach for this service. And I jumped on the opportunity because it, it, it absolutely excites me just to, to be here with y'all. So would you guys please pray with me? And uh, then we'll get started with this. Father, we love you so much, and we've got so much to be thankful for. Just over and over and over, you've shown your great and deep love for us. And Lord, we're just so grateful. Tonight, Lord, I just ask that as I'm preaching, that you, being present here with us, would, would convict the, the people here, that you would just speak directly to their hearts, and that they would desire to grow and to change. Lord, I ask also that it wouldn't be me up here who's, who's doing any of the convicting, that it would be completely you. And I pray that as, as people walk away tonight, that they wouldn't remember Mark, but that they would remember your word and that they would remember their God. So God, as we, as we dive into this, I just pray that, uh, that you would speak clearly through your word. Speak to this group tonight. I pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, I hope you guys all had a great Thanksgiving. I, I had a wonderful time. I went down to Corpus with Alyssa. She's my fiance. She's out here in the front row. Her family lives in Corpus, and so I got to spend some good quality time with them. We played some board games, ate a whole lot of food, just spent time together as family. And then we also got to watch A&M beat up TU. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I was hoping that I'd get a whoop out of this tonight. Uh, but, but it was just a really, really good Thanksgiving. I, I can remember when I was little, though, my parents would ask us to talk about what we're most thankful for. And, and I remember when I was really little, I, I actually said that I was thankful for a toy that I had. And, and so sometimes I'd say that I was thankful for my parents or thankful for toys, thankful for different things. As I got older and moved into high school, my, my values changed. And I was thankful that my teachers didn't give me homework over Thanksgiving. They had a nasty habit of giving us homework over our breaks. In fact, it was so nasty that they made our finals after Christmas break so that we'd have to study all of Christmas break. So, so, <laughs> thanks, Peter. So I was thankful just to not have homework. Then I came to A&M, and I was thankful just to have a break. You guys have been striving all semester long, and A&M hasn't given you even a day off since you started uh, until now. And, and so finally, you've got some time off. I have, I have friends who went to other colleges, and they get fall break, a whole week off somewhere in the middle of the fall, and then they get the whole week of Thanksgiving off. But I was thankful when I was in college just for two days. It was, it was wonderful. Well, this year, I, I started thinking about what, what is it that we're thankful for? What, what does that mean? And I think what it means is that it shows where our hearts are, where our value is placed. The things that... that we're thankful for are the things that we end up placing value toward. And so tonight, as we, as we get started, we're, we're going to be going to the Gospel of John, and we're going to be talking from chapter 4. And it's a story about the woman at the well. And during this story, Jesus is going to express two of his main values. Right? They're not his only two values, but they are two very, very important values that he has. And the two values that he's going to show in this passage are first— that he desires for non-believers to be in relationship with God. And second, he desires for those who do believe in him to be co-laboring in pursuing non-believers. And so I hope that you guys will see that tonight. 
But my bigger hope for you guys is that as we're going through this, that you'd start questioning, are my values in the same place that Jesus has his? Do I care more about the people that are not saved than about my own desires or needs or my own wants? Do I care more about, about God's kingdom than I do about my grades or than I do about relationship, like dating relationships? Now, don't get me wrong. I fully support getting good grades. I, and I, I want you guys to all graduate. And I, I fully support dating. I'm engaged, like I said, and so I fully support dating. But where are your values placed? What are you seeking most? Is it, is it a job after you graduate? Is that where you think that you're going to find happiness? Your full joy, satisfaction? Is it going to be in your family? What, what is it that you're placing your, your value in? And I want you guys to think through that tonight as we then talk about what Jesus values. And, and think through, do you value the same things? And if you don't, what are some things that you can change in order to align with Christ? And so tonight, as we look at John 4, we're going to see three different characters. We're going to see Jesus, we're going to see the woman, the Samaritan woman, and we're going to see the disciples. And so we're going to talk about them, and we're going to talk about the things that we can learn from the, these three characters. But mostly, we're going to focus on Jesus, because he's at the center of both of the conversations. So if you would, please read with me. Uh, we're just going to get started right away in verse 1. Now, when Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was winning and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and set out once more for Galilee. But he had to pass through Samaria. Now, he came to a Samaritan town called Sychar near a plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, since he was tired from the journey, sat down beside the well. It was about noon. A woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me some water to drink, for, disciple, for his disciples had gone off into the town to buy supplies. So the Samaritan woman said to him, How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for water to drink? For Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you had known the gift of God, and who it is who said to you, give me some water to drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman says to him, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Surely you're not greater than our ancestor Jacob, are you? For he gave us this well and he drank from it himself, along with his sons and his livestock. Jesus replies, everyone who drinks some of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks some of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So as we look at this passage, we see a few different things right off the bat. Jesus is in Samaria. All right? Samaria... Is, is this little plot of land in between two Jewish areas. All right? And Jesus is passing through here because it's the most direct route from Jerusalem up to Galilee. But the Jews hated Samaritans. The, the Jews saw the Samaritans as a racial half-breed. They 
had some Jewish tendencies, some Gentile tendencies. And, and so they'll trace their roots back to the, the Jewish ancestors of the uh, forefathers. And just like she says in here, she says that their father is Jacob, or the one that we now call Israel. And, and so they have some similarities, but when the, after the exile, the Samaritans actually refused to go back to Jerusalem, and they adopted different customs from Gentiles, and they breeded with Gentiles, and so they became this, this group that were detestable to Jews. And later, actually, in the book of John, Jews, when they're angry at Jesus, they'll call him a Samaritan, and they mean it as one of the greatest possible insults that they could have possibly offer. So, so Jesus sits down at this well in Samaria, and he is just waiting, and, and a woman comes up to draw some water. Now, she's not just a woman. She's a Samaritan woman. And what we're going to find out later is she's also an adulteress. All right? So there's three strikes against her. First, she's a Samaritan. And like we've already stated, Jews will have nothing to do with Samaritans. Second, she's a woman. And in this day and age where Jesus is, a rabbi or a teacher would not even consider speaking directly to a woman in this type of interaction. Even more than that, she's, she's a stranger, and so the custom of the time was to actually kind of ignore each other and pretend that they, they weren't right there. And so the third thing that we'll find out later is that she's an adulteress. And so she's got these three strikes against her. In our culture, we, we don't have the feel of what a Samaritan is, or we don't have this prejudice against women in, in the same way. So, so I think that more so in our culture, what this might look like is if you're talking with an atheist homosexual who loves to party. If, if you were sitting there talking with somebody like that and everybody else knew that about this person, there are probably going to be other Christians who are going to look at you and be like, what's he doing talk with that person? And, and, and so, so we'll see later on that the, the, the disciples are going to have that same reaction. Why is Jesus talking to this woman? But I think that the important thing to note from this is that this woman is eventually going to receive salvation and the fact that she has these three strikes against her shows that there is absolutely nobody who's unsavable. The atheist is not unsavable. A homosexual is not unsavable. Somebody who likes to party and that's where they place all their value is not unsavable. So no matter what, any person that we interact with is savable. And so as we look through this passage, we're going to set our minds on this idea of initiative evangelism because that's what Jesus is going to do. He initiates a conversation with this woman and, and he eventually gets through the gospel and, and she ve- becomes a Christian, all right? So no one's unsavable. As we look at how Jesus begins this conversation, I just want to point out one great detail And it's this, that he uses something common to talk about spiritual things. He didn't start off with a sermon. He didn't start off preaching. He didn't start off doing anything crazy. He just brought up something in common. He was thirsty. It's noon. It's the heat of the day. And she's probably thirsty because she's coming to the well for water. So so they're both thirsty. There's something in common. Now, the reason that we're talking about evangelism is because it is really, really important Jesus wants for us to be going out and sharing the gospel. And so we're going to see later that Jesus is going to call his disciples to do the same thing that he does here. So, so I want for you guys to take a look at how he does this. 
And I want for us to draw some principles. So for us, if, if we're going to go sit down and talk with somebody, bring up something that you guys have in common. You may have just watched a, a football game between A&M and UT, and, and you got really excited over it. And so you go and you sit down with, with somebody, and you're like, hey, did you see that game? Wasn't that awesome how A&M just absolutely destroyed them and made them look like fools? Thank you. <laughs> it, it, and, and so maybe you can start off your conversation with that thing that you guys have in common. Because here at A&M, you all have that in common, that you are Aggies. All right? Or maybe that it's that you guys just went out and saw Harry Potter. And so you'll, you could ask this person, hey, did you go see the new Harry Potter movie? And you've got something in common that you can work with. In this case, Jesus brings up water because that's what he knows that the two of them have in common. All right? So, so he talks about that. And then he starts to transition things into, into spiritual conversation. But first, she's going to, to offer up some sarcastic response to him because she can't figure out why Jesus, a Jew, would ask her for something. You see, I imagine what she's feeling right now is, what in the world? You Jews hate us. You despise us. You, you hate our every living gut. And you, you cannot stand us so much but when you need something, you come and ask for it? What's that all about? And so she points out this, this weird contradiction that she sees, that, that a Jewish man would ask her, a Samaritan woman, for water. All right? And so Jesus, being very patient with her, then shares the gospel very clearly. And the gospel that he's going to preach here is different than what we would preach about Jesus being the Son of God who, who died in our place and rose again. Frankly, the, the reason is because he hasn't died yet. And, and so he's not going to preach the risen Christ. Instead, what he's going to preach to her is this gift of God, which is eternal life, and that it is what is most satisfying. Right? And so what he says, he says, if you had known the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me some water to drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus makes it very clear that she doesn't have anything that she has to do, but instead all she has is to ask. She doesn't have to, to become a Jew and go worship in Jerusalem. She doesn't have to stop sinning. She doesn't have to do anything except to ask for, for this living water, to ask for life. And that's going to continue to be true because, because what we now know and, and what we can see throughout Scripture is that at all times, God, his plan for salvation was that we would have faith in his revelation thus far and then he would save us, right? And so you can see with Abraham, far before Christ died and was raised from the dead, he was counted as righteousness because he believed God. In the same way, he's going to tell her that if you have faith, if you would just ask for this, this gift of eternal life, I will give it to you. All right? And so that is the gospel for her. For us nowadays, though, if we're going to be sharing the gospel with somebody, we have more revelation. We have the whole New Testament. And, and so we know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And the reason he did it was because our sins caused death. And when Adam and Eve sinned, God promised them that in the day that they do, that they will surely die, or that they will die, die, in order to stress the importance. And, and so our sin has brought about death. Right? But Jesus, in his infinite love and mercy, came down to earth 
and died in our place. And the story doesn't end with Jesus' death, but it actually continues on with his resurrection because he is still alive. He ascended to heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of God, and he's awaiting the time when he's going to return and come back. And he's going to reign as the king over all. So that is the gospel that we would preach. And, and so the, the principle that I want you guys to see is that, that Jesus presented the gospel and he made it very clear that it's by faith that you can be saved. All right, so the woman responds in this way. She doesn't fully understand and so she asks a clarifying question. She says, hey, you, you don't have a bucket and this well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water that you talk about? And she brings up the issue. Our ancestor Jacob was the one who provided us this well. Surely you're not greater than him. And and Jesus, again, being patient, he explains that he's not talking about physical water anymore. He's moved away from physical water and he's transitioned to spiritual things. And the spiritual things he's talking about right now is eternal life. And so here's what he says. He says, everyone who drinks some of of this water will be thirsty again. This water that you're drinking doesn't fully satisfy. But whoever drinks some of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. So this this water, this water that Jesus offers is is eternal life. And, And what I love about this passage is that he's contrasting the Jewish way of of becoming clean. In Jewish culture, they had to sacrifice at the temple over and over and over again for all their sins. And so they constantly went back to to receive cleansing. But what Jesus is saying is this water that I give you, this eternal life that I give you, is going to be such that you don't have to keep coming back. All right? Once you have it, it's going to well up inside of you and it's going to be there for eternity. It's not, it's not going to just run out at some point. It's not going to, to fade away. You can't sin so much that you won't have it anymore. You can't try to run away from it because if you have living water, it's there. And, and it's going to well up within you toward eternal life. And so the woman responds in faith. Just as we said before, he said that she needed to ask and he would give her living water. Well, she asks here. She asks, and so I believe at this point, Jesus is going to give her salvation. John says that the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She doesn't fully understand the the nature of this gift, but she does have it. She asked, and I, I believe that Jesus is faithful. And he, if he says that all you need to do is ask of me and you'll have, you'll have this gift, and I believe that she got it right then and there. So in their culture, what was common and what was normal was for the husband to be present if some gift was given, all right? And so Jesus is about to offer her, or has already offered her this gift of eternal life. And, and so it was customary for something this valuable to be to be given with the husband present. And so we're going to look ahead and we're now going to see a transition in the way that Jesus talks to this woman. It's no longer sharing the gospel and evangelism, but he's going to transition into what we'd call now discipleship because he's going to focus on what she can be doing now that she is saved. And so let's read on. He said to her, go call your husband and come back here. 
The woman replied, I have no husband. So Jesus says to her, right you are when you said I have no husband. For you have, you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. So this you said truthfully. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You people say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. So Jesus says to her, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You people worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father seeks such people to be his worshipers. God is spirit and the people who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So when one says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, the one called Christ. Whenever he comes, he will tell us everything. Jesus says to her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. So so Jesus starts off this this part of the conversation and and tells her to go get her husband. And like I had just explained, he he told her to do this because that was the custom for giving gifts. Now, the reason I say that this is not evangelism anymore is because of the way that he addresses her sin. Salvation is offered before we've changed things. I love the way that Lecrae puts it in one of his songs. I'm going to try to kind of rap right now. the The way that he puts it is, God, will you take me as I am? I know the way I'm living is wrong, but I can't change on my own trying to make it alone. I wonder how could you love me with my life so ugly that you came down and died for me? Will you take me as I am? And I think that Lecrae says it so well because we come to Christ as broken, ruined individuals. And he's the one who changes us. And so he doesn't ask for us to change everything before we come to him. He tells us, come to me and I will change you. Right? And so that's what I think that Jesus is doing here is he's drawing out this, this area of sin in her life that, that has plagued her through five husbands and now she's on a sixth man who she's not married to. And she's looking for satisfaction in, in men because she, doesn't, she didn't know up until Christ came to her that, that there was satisfaction in something greater. And so if we're looking at discipleship principles, the first thing that I want to address is that if you, if you guys know a believer, another believer, and, and you want to encourage them, and you know that they're struggling with sin, be bold like Christ was and address the sin. Because it's not doing anybody any good to be dwelling in sin after we're saved. And that's what Jesus is telling her. It's not, it's not doing you any good. This isn't satisfying you. Husband after husband after husband has not satisfied you. No earthly relationship is going to fully satisfy you, but only Christ will. And so if you're talking with somebody, they've become a Christian, and now you, you start to disciple them or you start to just encourage them and build them up so that they have more knowledge and understanding, then you're going to have to address sin. The woman felt uncomfortable, and you would too if, if this man just came up to you and, and told you, hey, I, I think you're pretty cool, um, but I know that you sinned in this way and this way and this way. And you don't know this guy at all other than just the short interaction, but, but he draws out some of your deepest, darkest sin that you don't want people to know because you're ashamed of it. And, and we know that this woman was ashamed of it because she came to the well alone. 
It was customary in Samaritan culture to go to the well early in the morning or late in the evening when it was a little bit cooler and, and go with other women. It was not at all customary for this woman to go alone and certainly not during the heat of the day. And I think that the woman went during this time was because she was ashamed. She was ashamed and she didn't want to be around other people. And so she came out to the well when she knew that other people wouldn't be there. And so this area of sin needs to be addressed. The next thing, though, that she does is she's, she says, all right, this is too much. I, I get it. You're a prophet. You know a lot about me, but I feel really uncomfortable. So I'm going to transition conversation. And she transitions it to one of the biggest questions she has. And the, frankly, it was one of the biggest questions that Samaritans had. Hey, where do we worship? Where do we worship? You guys say it's over there in Jerusalem. We say it's over here on Mount Gerizim. Where, where are we supposed to worship? And so what Jesus tells her is two things. The first thing he tells her is that the Samaritans are not worshiping God because they do not know God. And it's a true statement. The Samaritans only agreed with the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't agree with the rest of the prophets or the books of history or any of the Psalms or spiritual, spiritual songs or any of that. All they agreed with was the first five, five books. And I, I read that, that their books were also changed somewhat. So, so really, they didn't even fully agree with what the Jews did in the first five books. And so what Jesus says is, you're missing out on, on a full picture of God because you have not been paying attention to the full revelation of God thus far. And, and so he says to her, you people worship what you do not know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. And this, again, Jesus says salvation was from the Jews. God chose the nation of Israel to be a nation that would shed a light on the rest of the nations, that they would come and that they would get to know God. We see a practical example in the Old Testament in the book of Jonah of, of a missionary and so in, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was supposed to be a light to the rest of the nations. And they were supposed to bring salvation to the whole world. And so when he says salvation is from the Jews, he's being very straightforward. That's, that's the case. And so, like I was saying with the, with the Samaritans, they don't know God because they don't know the full revelation. And so what I think Jesus is doing here is he's saying, you guys have it wrong. You need to be focusing on the full revelation of God. Likewise, in our day and age right now, we have the full Bible. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. We have all 66 books, all right? And, and so we ought to be spending time reading all 66 books, getting to know the Bible and getting to know God through it. Because it's the way that he's chosen to reveal himself to us. He's given us the, the Bible for us to know him and to be able to worship him well, all right? So if you are discipling a, a new believer, this is one thing that you really need to encourage. You need to encourage that they would start to know scripture, and they would study it, and that they would meditate on it. The second thing that Jesus encourages for this woman is true worship. He says that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such people to be his worshipers. God wants people to worship him. It's a true statement that we're going to be most satisfied when we are completely focused upward toward Christ. 
and toward God. If we are totally focused upward, we're going to find satisfaction and, and, and that's what God desires for us. He desires for us to be ones who are worshiping him. And he says to worship in spirit and truth. Really in the Greek, that kind of translates more as truly spiritual. And, and so what he's meaning by this is it's not just here at church on Sundays. It's not just while Jamie's playing. And it's not just when you're in Bible study, but it's, it's something that's, that's true of you at all times. That you would be worshiping 24-7. Colossians 3 says, Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what, he's, what Paul's saying to the Colossians is, no matter what, uh, no matter what it is, if you're sitting down for a meal, if, if you're going to the A&M football game, if you're just hanging out with your friends, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do all of these things with an upward focus. And so these are the three things that he's going to say about discipleship to this woman. And this woman gets so excited about this when, when he reveals to her what comes next. She says, all right, I get it. You have answers. You know me, even though we hadn't really met before. You know the deepest parts of my life. And, and she wants to find out, are you Messiah? The Samaritans also believed in Messiah. The one that they believed in was slightly different than what the Jews believed in. The Jews believed that there was going to be a ruling Messiah, one who's going to rule in a governmental form. But that doesn't show up until the Davidic covenant. And so since the Samaritans don't believe in the majority of the Old Testament, they only believe in the first five books, they're going to be looking for a Messiah who's going to answer their questions, that's going to, to do these things. So she, she says, when he comes, he will tell us everything. And Jesus very clearly says, I'm him. And, and so she gets excited, but part of me, when, when I start reading on, what happens is the, the disciples come up, and part of me is just like, dang it, the disciples, why do they have to come? This is such an awesome moment. It's been building up to this where Jesus reveals himself as Messiah. But she got what she needed. And so, so let's just look at what she does here. It says uh, in verse 28, And then the woman left her water jar, went off into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Surely he can't be the Messiah, can he? So they left the town and began coming to him. The woman's response to the gospel was to go and share with everybody else she knew. She went and shared with her people. Now it's going to be an interesting contrast as we switch over to Jesus' conversation with the disciples. Because the disciples were just in town. They were there gathering food because they're hungry. They know Jesus is hungry. And so they're just there gathering food. The woman's going to go to the town and gather people. The disciples who are supposed to be Jesus' followers and supposed to be learning how to do the work that he's doing are just in town gathering food. And Jesus is going to draw out this odd contrast. So it says, let's pick up in, in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. He said to him, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples began to say one another, No one brought him anything, did they? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to complete his work. Don't you say that there are four more months and then comes the harvest? I tell you, look up and see that the fields are already white for harvest. 
The one who reaps receives pay and gathers fruit for eternal life so that the one who sows and the one who reaps can rejoice together. For in this instance, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you did not work for. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So I love this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. He's a little bit harsh with them, but they need it. All right. They come and they are so concerned about their physical need for food. And all they care about is right here, their bellies. That's all they care about. And that's all they can think about for Jesus is that he needs food. And, and Jesus just got off having this awesome conversation with this woman. And, and so, so he says to them, no, no, guys, this, this isn't the point. This woman is about to go to the village that you just came from. And she's going to come back with a whole lot of people. And you guys are so focused on food. You're focused on things that are not going to last for eternity. And so he says, my food, what satisfies me most is to do the will of the one who sent me and to complete his work. God has been pursuing people since the very beginning of creation. He's been pursuing people because he loves us and he cares about us. And he has always chosen to, to do this work for his kingdom through humans. And so what we're going to see here is Jesus is going to offer them a great opportunity to enter into this. He says, don't you say that there are four more months to harvest? I tell you, look up and see that the fields are already white for harvest. As I was studying this, I, I was confused. What does he mean by the fields being white for harvest? Well, what a lot of authors had said was that it probably meant that the woman was bringing the men from Sychar back to him already. And and so they're walking through the field and Jesus is saying, hey, look up. Here is a flock of people that are coming because they want to know about me. And and so he offers them this opportunity to participate in the work that he's doing. And he says to look up. Then he says, the one who reaps receives pay and gathers fruit for eternal life so that the one who sows and the one who reaps can rejoice together. This is a really exciting thing that, that the work has already been started. I'm going to tell you this, the work here at A&M has already been started. The field here at A&M is white for harvest. There are non-believers that are just itching to know about Christ. A couple weeks ago, I was with one of the guys in my Bible study on campus, and we were going in and talking with students about God. And, and we came up to this one guy named Rigo. And Rigo was telling us about his life. He was telling us about his experiences in Iraq when he was, when he was a soldier there. He was telling us about his wife and kids. He was telling us about his job. He was telling us about the classes he's taking here at A&M. And eventually we, we transitioned the conversation back toward God and, and asked him, hey, do you believe that God exists? And he's like, well, I know God exists because I survived Iraq. But then what he said was, but now I think that God is trying to communicate something to me. And that seems strange to me. And so I asked him, what, what do you mean by that? And, and he said, well, a lot of people recently have been coming up just like you have because they wanted to talk with me about God. So I think that there's something there. Well, as we continued talking, I got to share the gospel with him and I asked him if he wanted to believe it. He's like, yeah. But then he asked, can I really be forgiven? I've done some terrible things in my life. Can I really be forgiven? And that's the beauty. Yes. Yes, I told him. You can be forgiven. 
There is no amount of sin that you have done in your past that will prevent you from being saved, will prevent God from forgiving you. He will not look at you and say, oh my goodness, that's surprising. I can't save that. There is no amount of sin that you have done that can prevent you from having a relationship with God. And so it was interesting watching him because he, he was like this at first with his arms crossed and he seemed really closed off because he, you could tell that there was, there was a lot of pain there. He, he, he didn't want to, to, to accept that, that there was a God who's going to forgive him and, and he didn't want to hear it if, if I told him, oh, well, that's too much. When I told him that you can be forgiven, he went from this all crossed up to this. And he was open to it. And I tell you this story because, because of the very fact that there is a guy at A&M that had been talked to about Christ. And, and he knew that, that there was something to this and he knew that God was trying to communicate to him and he didn't know what yet. Rigo is not the only student at A&M that is in that position. There are thousands of other students who don't know Christ yet. You can enter into God's labor as a sower, as one who's going out and sowing seeds and, and sharing the gospel with people. And you can enter into his labor as one who's going to reap, as one who's going to see people trust Christ. And what Jesus says is, this is what's most satisfying. It is most satisfying for me to do this work. It's more satisfying than food. It's more satisfying, you guys, than your grades. It's more satisfying than Christmas break is going to be. It's more satisfying than anything else to do this work. And so you might be looking at me right now and saying, I don't know about this whole initiative evangelism thing. It seems a little strange, and, and that's okay. Not everybody's going to love it, and it's not going to be everybody's go-to way of sharing the gospel. D.L. Moody once was doing an evangelism training where he was teaching about initiative evangelism and a girl came up to him afterward and she said, Dr. Moody, I don't like the way that you go about evangelism. And, and he looked at her and says, that's fair. You know, sometimes I don't like the way that I go about evangelism either. How do you do it? And she said, well, I don't. And so, so Moody then looks back at her and he says, well, I like the way that I do evangelism better than the way that you don't do evangelism. And I hear a couple of little chuckles there. And the point is this, guys, that it's all right if, you're, if you want to do relational evangelism where you build friendships with somebody for a long period of time and then you share the gospel with them. And it's all right if you do invitational evangelism where you bring them to the, the Christian events that you're part of. Maybe you bring them on ch- to church on Sundays or you bring them to your Bible study and you invite them to do hangouts with you where you're going to have other Christians. That's effective as well as long as you're sharing the gospel with them. All right? and, and so my point is that if it's not an initiative evangelism, you have to be evangelizing in another way. You have to be pursuing people. Because this is what Jesus is saying is most important. He's saying that this is where your value needs to be. Your value needs to be in pursuing people because, because they're the people that God is seeking to be his true worshipers. Now the Samaritans are going to come back to, to, the, to the well and they're going to become believers. Many of them actually became believers just on the woman's testimony about, about Jesus. But after, after they hear what Jesus has to say, many more of them say, all right, we believe. 
And so there's a group of people now in Samaria that the Jews would have considered unsavable that are now saved. The title for my, my sermon tonight was from Sychar to A&M because I think that the same principles that happened in this passage in John 4 are the same things that are happening even still. And so I want to just draw out in these last few minutes the principles from, from this passage. So about evangelism. Jesus initiated with the non-believer. All right? He started with a common point of interest and he carefully transitioned to the gospel. From the woman, we can learn a couple of things. We can learn that there's nobody who's unsavable. And there is nobody that has done so much wrong that, that God doesn't love them anymore. Right? And then second thing that we can learn from her is that our response to the gospel and response to salvation ought to be to go and share it with others. And so, as an application point for you guys, as you go home for Christmas break, you've got family members. You've got, you got family members, friends from back home that don't know Christ, and so your application is to, to share the gospel with them. Or between now and then, you've got friends. You've got classmates. You've got, you've got roommates, neighbors. They don't know Christ. And so your application is to, to practice sharing the gospel with them. From the disciples, we can learn a couple of things. There are non-believers all around you that need to hear the gospel. And the second thing is you have the opportunity here at A&M. You have the opportunity back at your house in Houston or Austin, Dallas, wherever you're from. You have the opportunity there. And finally, I just want to draw out a couple of points about evangelism. And we talked about them already. The first is that you need to address sin if you're, if, if you're going to help somebody mature in Christ. The second is that you need to encourage them to study scripture. And the third is you need to uh, help them learn how to worship in spirit and truth. Guys, this is too important. God wants for you to be sharing the gospel. It's so important because this is his kingdom that we're dealing with. And so if you've never tried to share the gospel and, and you feel like you're pretty satisfied already, go and try it. And experience the joy and the satisfaction that is far greater than what you've experienced before. If you have been, continue doing it because it is the work of the Lord and it is what God wants you to do. Guys, I'm so thankful that I've gotten to be up here and talk with you. Would you guys please pray with me and I'll let you go. Father, I thank you for this group. And I thank you for the, the truth from your word, just about evangelism, and that you care about people. And you care about your kingdom and you care that, that we can be involved in the work that you're doing. God, thank you for that. And I pray that this group would, would be encouraged by this and that they would desire to, to go out and share the gospel. God, I pray that if there are any unbelievers in here, that as they've heard that, that they can be saved and that there's nothing that's so far, that has taken them too far away from you, there's, there's nothing that's done it, that they would believe. God, we love you and we thank you for this time. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys.